0: Hello, I'm Nicole Aberdee and I write about books for Good Weekend. Welcome to the Books, Books, Books podcast, in which I interview the best writers from Australia and overseas about their latest books. Thank you for joining me. Before we begin, I would like to acknowledge the country where I live and work and from where I'm joining this conversation the lands of the Gadigal people of the Eora Nation. I pay my respects to their elders past and present to the elders of all communities and cultures across Australia and to leaders of the future. You can listen to this podcast, all of the episodes at nicoleabody.com.au or subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Today, I'm delighted to welcome Delia Falconer to Books, Books, Books to talk about her breathtaking essay collection, Signs and Wonders, Dispatches from a Time of Beauty and Loss, published by Scribner earlier this year. Let me just tell you a little bit about Delia. Dr Delia Falconer has a PhD in English Literature and Cultural Studies from the University of Melbourne. Signs and Wonders is Delia's fourth book. She's previously written two novels, The Service of Clouds and The Lost Thoughts of Soldiers, and Sydney, a personal history for her hometown, which won the C.A.L. Waverley Library Award for Literature. Her short stories and essays have been anthologised in many publications. She has judged several literary prizes, including the Stella and the Age Book of the Year, and her literary criticism is regularly published in the Sydney Review of Books, The Australian, The Age, and the Sydney Morning Herald. In 2018, her essay for Sydney Review of Books, The Opposite of Glamour, won the Walkley-Pascal Award for Arts Criticism. It is included in this collection, and we'll be talking about it. Delia is a senior lecturer in creative writing at the University of Technology, Sydney, and there have been a number of beautiful reviews of this book already, one I just wanted to quote from. The Australian Book Review uh, gave the book a beautiful review and it concluded by saying, Delia Falconer's mesmerising signs and wonders helps us to process the disorienting complexity of living in this time of great beauty and loss. Delia, welcome to Books, Books, Books. Hi, Nicole. Thanks for having me. You say on your website that your 2017 essay, The Opposite of Glamour, for which, as I've just said, you won the Walkley Pascal Award for Arts Criticism, marked a turning point in your work towards, you say, writing about the profound challenges we are all facing in a present of accelerating global change. Now, I was wondering, did you make a conscious decision? That from now on, that is what your writing would focus on, or has it just turned out that way? Oh, it's it's a little bit of both, Nicole.
1: I like most writers who um, started writing fiction. Uh, you know, we've all been, well, very many of us, have been talking about what fiction can do, and and um, just worrying about <laughs> what sort of contributions we could make to the world. And um, fiction is slow. Fiction is a different sort of way of writing, and um, what's happening, uh, you know, in in the the space of of you know the Anthropocene, the, you know, the this new era where um, you know humans have have gathered a, an ecological for or the force of an ecological new epoch um, is so is so rapid, and it's just coming at us so quickly that um, I think that nonfiction was. I was already leaning towards non-fiction more anyway, but I think non-fiction uh, made more sense to me personally um, as a way of, of tackling this material. Um, but, yes, it's been very much on my mind as it you know it is so many other writers.
0: At the core of this collection of 13 essays is the tension between your conflicting emotions. On the one hand, there's awe and wonder, at the sheer beauty of the natural world. On the other, there's despair and grief. At the prospect of its imminent loss. Would you like to talk a little bit about that tension and how it has affected your writing?
1: Mm. Well, that tension I realised was uh, was going to be the heart of the book. And once I sort of worked that out, the book started to, wouldn't say write itself, but it it, it started to to gain momentum. So I think that, you know, one of the things that really struck me about the, the the fact that you know every every time we look at the news we're hearing some terrible thing these days you know it's the ipcc reports or um you know stories of you know methane popping out of the and you know the the melting permafrost you know with the um you know sounding like um, bottles of, of champagne popping uh it's these what comes with that are changes that are that are almost unthinkable except we have to think them and we're living them and so uh, it was that I, I thought that the the thing that I wanted to think about and and try to work out for myself was just you know it might sound silly but how it feels and you know what sort of what sort of what sort of emotions does this moment produce um, you know we're living in a in a state of almost of sort of you know what what Keats called the state of the negative Capability that you had to write poetry in where you held two, you know, almost two impossible ideas in your in your mind at the one time. You know, and here we are in a in a moment where, you know, a lot of those changes are also, you know, there are some that are really profound and terrifying, but they're also um turning up things that are really beautiful. I didn't want to leave that out of the, you know, out of the equation either. So, you know, if you if you live on the net a lot like I do, um, you know, you open, you look at your Um, your feed, you look at your phone and you see all these, you know, these wonderful, amazing things coming through, you know, whether it's the fact that we're learning more about how trees look after each other and, and feed each other, or we learn that um, you know, bioluminescence is probably a language and probably the most spoken <laughs> language on earth, you know, um, in the deep sea. Um, you know, all these things are kind of popping through, you know, kind of coming at us um, and popping into our feeds. Or, you know, during COVID, um, one of the, you know, one of the phenomena of, um, of that period was people posting photographs of how incredibly beautiful the and clear the the skies looked. Mm. You know, you could you could see, you know, the the features of some cities like um Mumbai <laughs> for the first time in a very long time. And people were fascinated by the fact that we could hear birds more and we could see nature more. So you've got this, you know, really strange mix of, you know, because the world's in uh you know in in it's it's you know it's going out of whack. And you know its old patterns are starting to accelerate and change. You have uh, really it's 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 almost like a kind of. I always think it's almost like the Baroque. You've got this, you know, these or the the moment you know at the end of the fireworks show where they you know put out all the big big rockets at the um, at the last minute that you've got you know moments of spectacular beauty. Uh, you know, kind of competing with this. Say face of terrible almost daily uh, news that we're facing at the moment. So I wanted to capture that, you know, that that precipice that we're sort of living on but also to think about how to express how that feels and how other, you know, other writers and
0: artists um, were trying to express those things as well. Did writing about these things help you to resolve some of the tension in yourself, I suppose, in in your own mind. <laughs> no, <laughs> um,
1: I like clarity, and I like you know. I there, you know. I think about what kind of contribution I can make as a as a writer, and you know, I'm not a politician. I'm not a rouser of the of the troops, but I do specialize in trying to find exact words for things. I you know, I specialize in trying to describe things, and. I thought I just want to, uh, just, you know, I really want to kind of pinpoint as accurately as I can what I think some of the, what it feels like, what the textures are like of this time. And I don't know if what I'm doing is a, you know, is going to be, um, you know, a kind of a, a, a requiem or if it's going to be, you know, help to, to facilitate
0: change. One of the things you talk about, which I'm going to return to a little bit later, is the role of the writer and what writers can do in the time that we are living in. Something I thought was really interesting was that you return in a number of the essays to the attacks on the United States on the 11th of September 2001. Some of those essays where you talk about those attacks are the weight of things and another one, how it feels now after hysterical realism. Both terrific essays, by the way. We won't get a chance to talk about those anymore in our conversation today, but both wonderful. I wondered, what do you see as the significance of those attacks for what you're writing about?
1: Mm. Well, that really, um, it really took me by surprise how present that moment was. And I think that, you know, clearly it had an effect. I write about, you know, I write in my book about, sitting at home in Fitzroy in Melbourne and my partner ringing and saying, turn on the TV, interesting, you know, interesting things happening in the United States. He was at work, so he <laughs> couldn't sort of, um, you know, leave a, a longer message than that. And like everyone else, I was, you know, horrified and shocked. But, you know, on the, you know, I wouldn't say that it had a, a hugely exaggerated place in my sense of of history and, and, and history's horrors. It was horrifying, but I don't, you know, I'm not, sort of fixated on it so that's why I was very surprised that it it came back and it it came back for my publisher as well because Mm -hmm. um you know when we were talking about this book having conversations about it he said oh I just feel you know I have this weird feeling like I had after 9-11 where things are kind of you know up in the air and and um there's this kind of tension don't quite know how things are going to resolve and he also Came up with the great example of of thinking that this moment's almost like you know when you watch a whale breaching and it's mm. going to kind of crash
0: down. And so you referred also to Philip Philip and McGinnis's book, yes, two thousand and one, yes, the year that everything yes. changed. Thinking, yes, it, it kind of um, was, wasn't it? Yeah, and it's
1: it's just that you know you, in the wake of that, certainly artists and writers were you know really troubled, I suppose, about the role of the novel, and that had been coming for a while anyway. I think, but. Uh, I won't go into that essay, but you no. know, two weeks after 9-11, the, the English literary critic, um, James Wood, says that writers can't, you know, they don't have the capacity to deal with a monstrosity like 9-11 um, because the novels become this, you know, sheer sort of Frankfurt School entertainment where they just you know, give people information and write mini essays
0: mm. and that sort of thing. And that's another um, story for what you have to another, say.
1: That is another story. Listeners, um, read, read the essay
0: for what um, what James Wood said and what Delia's response but to But I
1: it think is. that there was a real, effect on a lot of writers of taking that very much to heart and thinking Mm -hmm. oh you know it is the novel over but Mm -hmm. I actually think that that kind of just you know gave a you know it's a bit like 9-11 as well that so many things were changing around about that point and I think the you know we start to it's almost at a kind of a um, an instinctive sort of level I think that if you look at writing and you look at um, uh, a lot of art around that period there's this feeling that reality has become very big and it's become very, there's some sort of change afoot. And I think what that change is, is actually us starting to come into this moment of realising that the earth is in trouble. Um, and I think that's the, and so I think around about 2001, there's this feeling that things are kind of accelerating. Mm-hmm. Um, and that was really interesting to me because, um uh, in about 2014, uh, I'd sat in a conference room at a first the first conference in, in humanities on on the Anthropocene, which was a new word then. It's still not ratified, but you know, it was looking at again this this sense that that um, you know we're now in a kind of a, a world where where human activity is dominating. You know, things like the Gulf Stream, you know, amazing uh, changes. Um, and these graphs show the way that we used to that, that how human consumption starts to accelerate about 1950, and then you just watch the graphs shoot up at about 1990, and so they start to go off the charts. And those graphs were st- stopped um, being updated. Last time they were updated was about 2010. So you know, who knows? You know what? But but you can actually see things starting to go off scale. It's really interesting to me that that's about that's kind of the moment when I think that there is this anxiety around writing and there's this anxiety about how we, you know, just there's this fascination with... Things and and you know, let's say another essay <laughs> books about you know all these books start to come out on cod and nutmeg and you know kind of obsessive interest in 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 stuff you know the stuff that we've made and we've imposed on the on the earth potatoes and you know nutmeg and on and on it goes yeah so so and I think that it's nine 11 kind of sits at that point it's, it's this kind of marker, this sort of spike that sort of sits there and and kind of absorbs and becomes a symbol. It's terrible, terrible mm. in its own way, but I think it sits there as a kind of a, um, you know, it comes at this moment, I think, of inc- inc- really radical sort of um, um, cultural cha- change um, and this feeling of having all these feelings and, <laughs> you know, not kind of quite knowing how to write them or where to go with them, but you start to see novels, you know, really, really changing form. Um and I think that, yeah, language um starts to change around that, but I think feeling starts to change around that
0: time in ways that I've tried to to explore throughout the book. So there are 13 essays, each of them deeply personal, and you write about a range of topics about the the bushfires of 2019 and 20 about coal, about birds, about gum trees, about contemporary literature, about life during COVID, and about a fur seal who turned up in your neighbourhood. Now, I wish we could talk about all of them. We can't. I've chosen to focus on two of your essays. One is Signs and Wonders, which is the opening essay and the one that gives the title to the book, and the other is the opposite of Glamour, that you won the Walkley Mm
1: -hmm. Prize
0: for. So let's start with Signs and Wonders. You start in that essay talking about the decline in animals that you see around you. You go to Woolloomooloo and you look in the water, there are less fish. You look up in the sky, there are less flying foxes than there used to be. And then you start reading horrific statistics about how much wildlife we as a race, the human race, have killed in the last 50 years. And you wonder if we are perhaps, I'm using your words, entering a new era of signs and wonders, similar to that in roman times. What do you mean by that?
1: Well that phrase just came into my head that day when i was looking at the at the fish and and the thing that you know the thing that was striking about that moment wasn't you know the the, the it wasn't like i could definitely go oh i'm looking at a harbor and i know that we've lost all these fish. The thing was i didn't know and it was that feeling that i wanted to capture that um you know uh, that we have um you know, long Indian summers of, you know, beautiful, you know, beautiful evenings that go on maybe that week or so longer than you would usually expect at the end, of, you know, at the beginning of autumn. Um, or there are terrific, you know, once in a hundred year hailstorms that have, you know, come a couple of times <laughs> within a five-year period. Um, and you find yourself thinking, is this a sign of something, you know, really terrible of the world unraveling of all those things we're being told about? Um or is it just you know is it just one of the kind of you know wondrous um uh natural changes that that the world can have so that's that was the sort of moment but i had that phrase that came into my into my head where i thought i feel like i'm i'm living in a in a world of signs and wonders um, what's the
0: roman reference just explain the roman that to reference
1: us. is um, that um, when I studied Latin at school, which was actually the best thing I've ever done um, <laughs> for a career in writing, um, we learned about um, the Roman um, augurs and heruspices. And so these were people who, so their mode of um, trying to determine the God's will would be to kill an ox and look at the shape, the shape of its heart. Or oh, they'd look at its entrails mm-hmm. um, or they'd look at animals out of place and... Um, uh, flights of birds <laughs> and I just found myself thinking well actually that's what we're doing these days but actually rather than trying to determine the you know the God's wills these days we're trying to um determine if you know if it's a due somehow to us you know and that's that's the constant thing I think that kind of comes into your mind is that um you know are we or at least those of us who live in you know um, fossil fuel addicted um, parts of the world are we you know are we responsible for things and then I found myself thinking well actually um, there's this incredible correspondence between those um, or who perhaps weren't that you know weren't that silly after all I mean I think that's the other thing about the mm-hmm. the ancient period that we're starting to to find more and more mm-hmm. um, but I thought look I can go on the online now and I can look at awful autopsies of whales having enormous amounts of plastic and bits of greenhouses and, you know, tarpaulin and uh, rice sacks being pulled out of their stomachs, um, you know, or I can look at the um, photographs that went viral of um Birds that had, uh, you know, on the Midway Atoll, um, Mid- Midway Islands, in the middle of the Pacific, like one, of the, you know, furthest points from human um, uh, civilization that you could find on the planet, and those birds had been ingesting plastic. And so, um, I'm going to forget the name of the photographer, but there, there were these stunning, awful but beautiful um, photographs that the bird carcass had rotted away, and you had the wings and the skeleton, and then these. Um, stomachs full of bright, um, you know, lighters and um, bottle lids and pen caps and, you know, that the poor mother birds had had mistaken for um, food for their babies. And so, you know, we're in this period where, (laughs) but constantly, you know, these, um, again, all these sort of signs that, you know, probably, you know, should have Mm. us. Um, you know, oh, running with our hair on fire, yeah, uh, with terror, um, often appear as something just you know amazing and wonderful. So yeah, so so parch marks, I think, because I started collecting them, and what are they? You know, so so parch marks were the mark, the, the footprints of old Neolithic villages of. Um, Uh, old manor houses from the Tudor period of World War II airfields that because because northern Europe's summer of 2018 was so unprecedentedly dry that um, what you get is this effect where the grasses become so dry that the kind of ghost shapes of um, these things emerge in a different colour in a kind of brighter darker green out of this parched scorched back to the earth sort of landscape it's just You know, incredible stuff. But the, you know, that what that is, what that's trying to tell us is that, you know, again, we are leaving a very stable period in the Earth's history. Um, But you know, you look at an article like the New Yorker, you know, that sort of starts by saying this has been a, you know, an absolute feast for aerial archaeologists. And so there's this constant urge, I think, we have to convert these things into wonder, almost maybe as if wonder can save us or that, you know, that, that, oh, if we could just wonder enough about things, you know, maybe we'll want to, want to change um, the earth or maybe we should just look at them and, and, and think how amazing they are. And so that's part of our disconnect, isn't it? That we've, (laughs) we're seeing all these things that are, you know, fundamentally pretty horrifying and unthinkable, um, appearing as, you know, cool curiosities on Twitter or Instagram, you know. I
0: mean, one that you wrote about that just immediately struck a dagger into my Mm -hmm. heart was something written that said, if you see me weep.
1: Mm. They were um, hunger stones uh, that were in the... um, in the Danube River uh, near a, a town called Dessin in the the Czech Republic, and that th- they had recorded um, historically low water levels around about maybe the fourteen hundreds, and so and they they had and so their job was to appear out of a dry riverbed, and and so they say, uh, uh, what is it, "Vandum, bicieist danvena"? If you when you if you see me, mm. which is. <laughs> You know, perhaps, mm. you know, that that's a perhaps good metaphor mm. for, yeah, for the Anthropocene period generally.
0: I want to ask you now about COVID, about something very interesting that you say, and I was, I was interested in the footnotes as well. COVID makes you wonder if by ignoring all these terrible portents, and as well as the things you've just mentioned, you talk about many examples, but you talk about the dead fish in the Darling River. You talk about the death of 60% of the global population of antelopes in just one fell event whether we're ignoring those things at our peril. And you note that some scientists have suggested that with COVID, nature is sending us a message. Could you talk a little bit about that, the link between human activity and between the impact that humans have had on our environment and sure.
1: COVID? <laughs> that I'm, I'm not a scientist. Um, basically, we are moving closer and closer into those last pockets of, you know, the wild, much as anything can you know be wild these days with Satellite technology and whatever, but those last um, those last little wild frontiers. And so, if you have, say, a chicken farm, or you know, um, you know, a human, you know, a human city right on the edge of um, what was once wild, that sort of barrier between those two worlds disappears. And so, those um, viruses that would have um, uh, found a host on wild animals hop species barrier basically, and they find a host on us. Mm-hmm.
0: One particularly heartbreaking event that you describe is the sound of the rapid melting of frozen ground in a mega slump in Siberia. You write about excruciating sounds that have been described as sounding like animals in pain. You write about some anthropologists who believe that this is evidence that the world itself is animate, that it possesses agency, and that, in fact, what the world is doing, it was just such a heartbreaking image, was calling out to us in distress to stop. Could you talk a little bit about that idea and about Freud's notion, which you came back to, of the uncanny?
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah, so that crater is the um, Batagai um, crater in Eukartia in Siberia. And so one of the things that's occurring at a very rapid rate is the melting of, of permafrost. And so it's the scientists there talk about the sound of this, this, this I think it's like a kilometre deep um, mega slump that's opened up and and they Talk so vividly—it's not my description, you know—about the the chunks of ice falling down and this constant the constant rivulets of water running through through the earth. And so there's there's a philosopher called um, 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 Bruno Latour who has been who is one of the more influential people in this area. Again, it's not entirely my own idea. Who talks about the the fact that actually in Western society becoming Uh, modern in inverted commas what it has done has been to divide the realms of nature and science and so there's been this you know this this great this great divide um and part of that you know terrible project in many ways of wonderful but terrible terrible project of of western civilization has been this idea of uh the rational science which has got us in many good Places as well, but particularly that notion of um, separating ourselves from anything that can't be verified, that can't be subject to, you know, to 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 visual um, or you know or, or um, identification or weighing or, or proof. And so, part of that our move into modern science is Freud. I actually love I love Freud, but he writes about the the un- uncanny and talks about the uncanny thing, when something that has hitherto been familiar <laughs> becomes unfamiliar, um, and he writes that sensation, often says, "Well, actually, that is a kind of a, uh, in a way, a sort of a return to our more, you know, sort of primitive inverted commas, mind inverted commas, um, an, you know, animist sort of roots." So he dismisses and it. He sees it as being as as um yeah that that it's uh it's a a feeling that is a an ancient and old fashioned. <laughs> Feeling, the uncanny and it's and so yes it's a um it's it's something that we would you know rationally sort of separate ourselves from yeah. our inheritance i think is to dismiss you know dismiss uh particularly um indigenous people's ideas of of and, and well conception of the of the world as something that we're different different parts of the, all parts of the world have agency i mean it makes a tremendous amount of sense as, as bruno latour says we've never been modern you know in being modern we have you know made this terrible you yeah. know um terrible sort of separation but um that that those cultures almost you know typically tend to see the world as possessing agency but also being meshed and working together and that Western science has generally um even with concepts like the the web of life and so on, there's still been that that human exceptionalist um idea that we are, you know, at the you know, we are the sort of the endpoint of evolution and we are
0: the 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 exception to the rules of of nature, if you so like. what they are saying is that the world is inanimate, that it is acted upon. But mm-hmm. what people like Latour are saying and what you're arguing is that that's not right, that the world is not inanimate. It is it is animate and mm-hmm. it has agency mm-hmm. and it can act and it can express its feelings and this melting of the ice is an example mm-hmm. of the earth crying out mm-hmm. saying, please mm-hmm. stop.
1: Mm-hmm. It just makes sense to me. But, I mean, these are the things that we also intuited as kids, I think. Mm-hmm. You know, and so one of the things that, and science is, you know, in a way catching up with these things so you know that that say, so the whole idea that trees are in a sense social that they um probably can com- you know communicate via rhizomatic uh, re- networks um that they are able to a certain extent feel pain to uh to defend themselves by releasing certain chemicals into the air that they're really they're even you know sort of sometimes moving, you know, in
0: response to, you know, to changes in the climate. Um, and send. I love the other bit about sending messages to their fallen comrades. That's
1: right. And they will send sugars and food through those networks to fallen dead trees that are mm. still, you know, still kept as part of the, you know, the, the sort of tree society, you know, but that that's the sort of stuff that, you know, I think you did ensure it as a child too. I mean, mm. it makes perfect sense to me you know i used to look at you know i still look at trees you know when you look at the paddocks in australia and you look at the single tree that's standing there the grand old tree of the forest and there's no trees around it's just you know the bare one in the middle of the paddock i always think they look lonely <laughs> um and so it is like you know those sort of fairy you know fairy tale things we going to think through western culture that that you know we grew up in and your own natural sense as a as a child i think of the the way that the the world does mesh together and does have agency is actually starting to, you know, also, you know, be
0: um, subject to scientific proof now as well. And Dilly, you referred uh, in connection with that to the learning and the knowledge of Indigenous Australians mm-hmm. and their relationship to country, and you write about the fact that their notion of country is not just the actual physical landscape it includes all living things mm. i'd like you to talk a little bit about that and what what we can learn from indigenous australians mm. in the mm. in the context of the calamity that we are potentially facing well, i mean
1: there's a, there's a few things we can learn and again it's very um it's a it's an area that i approach with great humility because i don't want to appropriate that that knowledge uh at all i also you know i'm very aware that Part of that inheritance here in Australia is, you know, is is survival. I mean, you know, we we live in a country which I think is, you know, astonishing and fantastic, um, of a a people who remember, you know, have cultural memory of sea rise, you know, of the end of the Mm -hmm. last glacial melt, who would have witnessed Sydney Harbour, you know, fill. Um, watched the Eastern Sea, watched the ancient volcanoes, you know, and this is still in the, um, you know, in the cultural memory um, and also survived colonisation, so the violence of colonisation. So those are things to learn from as well, I think. Uh, But there's been a lot of interesting work done. The anthropologist deborah bird rose has worked with the new people up the very far north of australia and she has looked at their their concept which i find very beautiful and and wonderful it's going to be she's going it, it's going to be explained more in her book which is coming out next year which is some um, flying fox flying fox dreaming i think is the is the title for it and they have a concept called shimmering and so the world is made up of interspecies pulses all intermeshed together, which I think is a
0: a, a a fabulous term. Are there some Indigenous writers that you would like to refer our listeners to, Delia, whose work you drew on? Yes. I Look, uh,
1: um, I'm not going to be the first person to recommend Bruce Casco's writing. Also within the um, Sydney area, I drew a lot on the numerical professor, Dennis Foley's writing. It is a fabulous book. It's quite hard to get hold of, Repossession of Our Spirit, about, about Sydney. And he is, again, very interesting on the, you know, I, I write a lot about Sydney. And so I've tried to, uh, to and I, I mentioned some of the, the stories from his book in, in my book. Yes. Um, also, um, uh, Victor Stephenson's um, work on fire, and uh, Darrell Elder, Francis Bodkin, who is a um, who writes about the the, the seasons uh, in Australia, but the the concept of of seasons being very relational. So you know a a, a, a um uh, rather than imposing the four seasons that we've imposed on on, um, mm. on Sydney. I mean, you I think I think there is something like two seasons in the in the north in um, Indigenous weather experts' way of understanding, and, and I think they're about 12, but they are actually, um, you know, you look for the triggers. You don't look for a date like you, know, yes. you look for. Um, but they're also tied to bigger 12-year cycles but also, um, you know, you know,
0: cycles of thousands of years as well. So, And you um, refer to the writings of these Indigenous what, writers in the footnotes and in your bibliography. Could we talk now about? Another of your essays, The Opposite of Glamour. And in this one, you write about how we are living through the sixth extinction, that being the sixth since life on Earth began 3.7 billion years ago. And you make the horrifying point that this one, unlike the others, was actually caused by humans rather than by natural disaster. Mm you write also in the last 50 years, we've lost more than 68% of our animal species worldwide, which was a figure that just absolutely mm. horrified me. Mm. You start to think about the flying foxes that you've always associated mm. with Sydney in great masses and how you're now seeing less of those. And you say that you read somewhere that the kinds of animals we have lived around influence mm. who we are as people. And I wondered what you thought about that. Do you think? Do you think that's right? Do you agree with that? yes of course <laughs> um i think that that uh yeah
1: those figures around um animal loss were the ones that i think have possibly m- moved and and sort of agitated more people about really understanding that the you know that there's something uh very terrible going on um those and the the figures around in the insect apocalypse where um you know we've observed you know, in some instances, you know, it's about ninety percent losses of some, mm. you know, just insects, which you always think are going to be the, you know, we've always joked survivors that are going to be the, the creatures that
0: um, that outlive us. You write about how the knowledge of environmental damage and extinction of animals means that encounters with nature now have a real sadness for you, and you speak about you use a lovely expression about being homesick in your very being. Now, in another part of the book, you write about solastalgia, a term coined in 2005 to describe a feeling of being out of place, even when we're at home. Could you describe that feeling for us? And I assume they're the same things that the solastalgia is this notion of being homesick in your very being. Mm. There's another anthropologist called Glenn Albrecht who came up with that term
1: solastalgia. And there's a few I'm fascinated by the uh, the language people trying again to sort of find words for the unthinkable so mm. and there's another writer called elizabeth rush who writes about her sensation of end sickness which is a sort of vertigo that she feels again in places that should be familiar where she feels the you know the intonations of of, um, of great change and look it's not a feeling that i have all the time otherwise life would be unlivable and I try to look at that those those senses of of continuity that I that I have and my love of my my city and and my place but you know when it strikes you that feeling that you know you are you know in place but the place is you know so fundamentally changed that you feel homesick are horrifying and I think for, for most of us that, those, that feeling hit very, very hard around the bushfires that destroyed mm. almost all of the eastern seaboard of Australia. Mm. And I just remember being in Sydney in my hometown that i <laughs> written a book about and, you know, I would have thought that some things would have been around for a very long time, like the southerly busters, like the humid air, the particular smell, a marmy sort of smell that Sydney has, the kind of lushness that it has. And honestly, that stuff now we know can turn on a dime. And to see the 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 my city just you know just thick with smoke, yeah. air just not smelling like my hometown, yeah. the air that I'd grown up with, so profoundly and so shockingly for such a long period of time for you know for a couple of months, really just you know brought all these things home to me. I I found returning to that those months and you know I wasn't particularly near the fires uh, really traumatic of all the things to, to write in the book. That was the hard one to return to because every time I went back into that chapter to revise it or to make sure that I had some of my facts right, you know, I just felt that the earth just moved beneath my feet again. Um, and so that's the, I suppose that's the thing about being in this moment of signs and wonders. We've got the, You know, the wonders are really present and they're kind of amazing and we, you know, see them all the time, but that, you know, once you hit one of those calamities, like those, you know, absolute sort of seismic changes like the bushfires or like COVID, there's actually not much else to talk about. You know, it's just so consuming. But I guess that's the other thing that's kind of, you know, that's seasicky about it that, you know, is this awful feeling of homesickness uh, Mm -hmm. that you just, you know, go into this kind of gaia of... (laughs) Of
0: that, of that sort of change. It's almost twofold, isn't it, as you describe it? It's a it's a great sense of grief and loss for what's been lost already, but it's also a fear and a dread of what is mm. yet to be lost.
1: Mm, mm, mm.
0: And the sensation of the
1: swiftness of it. Um, I think that's the thing that, you know, only 10 or so years ago we were still talking about these changes. Potentially, you know, maybe coming in 100 years time, um, the end of this century, maybe into the next century. And, you know, so many of those tipping points and, you know, predicted, you know
0: um, predict- predicted profound changes are very clearly already here. Let's come back to the term, and I'm probably not going to pronounce it correctly, but I'll do my best, Anthropocene mm-hmm. that you've referred to. And that's a term often used to describe mm-hmm. the epoch that we're living in right now. What does it mean and why is it controversial?
1: Well, it was coined uh, really only about, again, around about sort of 2000 by a scientist called Paul Crutzen. And he, uh, it it, uh, it had, that sort of idea had been around for a while, but that it really just sort of started to take off around about 2014, just sort of enter the general. It's it one of those words that just, it's had a, an application far more than its scientific meaning. And the scientific meaning is this idea that humans have become a geological force and they've become enough of the geological force to to name this as a new era. So the the idea is that we moved out of the Holocene, which is this 12,000-year, very stable period that we've we've been in where the earth's been sort of very predictable and you know it's been a very lovely time for 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 humans uh to be on the earth and we've shifted into this new era and that it's human made. Uh the controversial aspects of it are that it you know it it talks about um humans generally whereas it's uh you know that that is that kind of takes various things out of the equation. It takes uh, it takes colonialism out of the question it take and it takes uh capitalism out of the question mm. so it assumes um, that everyone is equally responsible which isn't right is, no no and so there's a whole series of other names that people have come up with as, mm. as potential but they don't have that i think they haven't they haven't got that sort of heft to them that captures people's imaginations in the same way as the anthropocene that people have suggested things like the young, um, capitalist scene um, or the plantationist scene, that, you know, thanatocene, you know, like, see, like a death drive, thinking of Freud again, uh, an era with a, you know, that, that sort of where the economy, the extractive economy is, uh, you know, in a, you know, a, an embrace to the death. So there's a lot of other terms that, that people have tr- have come up with as alternatives to try and get around that that idea that somehow mm. um, everyone- All humans
0: are, are equally responsible. responsible. Mm.
1: Mm.
0: Let's talk now about something that you touch on very specifically in this essay, although you touch on it also in some of the other essays, and that is the role of the writer mm. in the face of climate catastrophe. Obviously something very relevant to you, obviously something that you've given a lot of thought to. So you start in this essay by saying, you, in one of the sentences, you say something like, leaving aside the question of whether art can have any effect or whether it can influence the threats of facing humanity. So I wanted to take stop you at that point and say, what do you think about that? Why, are we gonna, why leave it aside? Do you think that art can influence, have an effect on the threats facing us and how we respond right now?
1: Look, I think it can, um, but I found myself thinking as I wrote this essay, the reason it's called The Opposite of Glamour is because I thought, well, yes, you know, there's a, <laughs> yes, I could write novels and, you know, nonfiction um, about this material. But it's, you know, in terms of the kind of consumership that that's going to have, it's very small compared to what I call the, you know, the kind of the world of glamour. So, for you know, I think for every, you know, small book like mine that kind of walks out into the, into the world, there's a whole um, a really powerful edifice of, you know, fashion advertising, uh, television makeover shows. uh,
0: Of people and of houses, right? uh,
1: Yes, yes, all all of which, um, you know, suggest a very different sort of magical thinking about the world, but I think it's the really powerful one. I say in the book I think it's the one that may, you know, may yet kill us all. Everything can sort of, you know, in those programs everything can be fixable made made over you know you can always you know you can always find that tropical island you know that's you know where it's where where it's safe and it's untouched and un, unpolluted and you know you mm-hmm. look at any i I, um, I write about this magazine that i'm sort of obsessed with that i, I that keeps peering at my house I ask for for virtuoso life and uh, <laughs> in the pages of virtuoso life you can always sort of you know if you're feeling down about COVID, you can always you know buy some shoes some you know cunning sandals from your favorite um you know your favorite boutique hotel
0: in positano you know mm-hmm. online you don't even have to travel there anymore
1: that's right and you look at all the photographs are very much very much like the, the photographs of the wonders that come through our feeds where you know you'll have you know that classic image of the farmer farmer's hands holding the arugula with the soil still on its roots you know the piles of saffron and so there's this way of breaking the world down that uh, into its you know into its glamorous paths that are always exchangeable that are always, you know, there's always a clean place for those people who are the kind of the the winners in in uh, in in society, and that. So, uh, I think that that's a really enormously powerful set of um, cultural beliefs that are
0: incredibly hard to fight. Tell us then about the opposite of glamour. You say that a lot of it, the, a lot of Australian writing, mm-hmm. is the opposite of glamour, and that maybe because of that, it's a good place to start to mm-hmm. face the losses ahead of us. So. Tell us about that sort of writing that's the opposite um, of glamour.
1: Well, I think, you know, we in Australia, we tend to write. Um, we don't have that history of nature writing, which I think is, you know, as a genre. So if you go into a bookstore in America, it's fascinating. Uh, you know, you have shelves full of nature writing and there'll be you know regional writing and and, you know it's such a huge uh, such a huge sort of edifice or if you if you go into a bookstore here in Australia most of the books that we see about nature many of which are fantastic are out of the Northern Hemisphere, mm-hmm. and they are out of a tradition of nature writing. You see it very clearly in all the sort of the English nature writing books that that, that we consume. Um, and Australia doesn't have that, that history really. You know, you, you'd be hard-pressed to think of anyone who was, you know, we have science writers, people like Tim Flannery. We have uh, great sort of environmental histories, um, people like Tom Griffiths. Uh, we have so many books that move interestingly through, you know, write about the environment. You know, James Bradley's novel *Clade*, but we don't tend to have that, we don't package it up in a neat little box. We tend to, I, I think I say that our nature writing tends to be, you know, more feral. You know, it happens sort of as an offshoot of of, of something else being written. Um, and I think that's, a, you know, a, a really good thing because I think it means that we don't start, we, we tend to, observe things closely and we don't tend to put things in silos in
0: Australian writing, which is is really great. So that's the opposite of glamour that yep. you're talking about. One of the things you worry about is that the very, you say, the very underpinnings of storytelling itself are becoming endangered given the world that we live in and the threats that we're facing. Mm-hmm. Would you like to talk about what you mean by that? Well, there's a philosopher, Freya Matthews,
1: um, who's very interesting on this stuff and she talks about the way that you know a fundamental storytelling has come out of things that things like you know being able to be aware of the the seasons but also on the the of generation of the renewal of the of of the earth. I think one of the most frightening things I've heard said about um extinction is that it isn't so much about the death it's the loss of birth. <laughs> you know that it's the, the fact that new things won't be born in, into the world. And our Cultural patterns, our ways of thinking, our emotions have been so tied to those stable, those stable patterns of the earth. You know, the fact that you would have you know, dependable, bring someone For You think of all the, mm. you know, songs from the ones you had mm. to, you know, sing summer is a coming in, um, at school in school choir, you know, mm. through to so many of the, you know, the great works of, of poetry, you know, based on on those sort of stable ideas. But, you know, also ideas like, you know, that, that have got us into trouble like progress, you know, also continual sort of human progress through time. You know, they are all also brought into radical doubt by you know the fact that those those systems are unraveling and it does require it certainly will require you know more sooner rather than later radically different ways of thinking of ourselves you know loss of animals it's you know we learn as little children um you know i've got 10 year old children all their books are about you know are about foxes and Cats and you know and and wild animals um, in particular lions and so forth and you know we learn to define ourselves through our relation to animals you know those when those creatures are um, not just the rare exotic ones but you know the ordinary ones the ones mm. that you know were thought to be a dime a dozen like mm. insects and bats are uh, also. Under threat. Um, Under threat. Mm. How are we, how do we see ourselves? We'll be very lonely.
0: I wanted to ask you about your children. I know they were born in 2011, your twins. And I wondered, you said that it was about 2016 that your writing really started to change direction so that you focused more and more on the subject matter we're talking about now. And I wondered to what extent having children had also influenced you and, made you focus on these issues more clearly?
1: Um look, I was always focused on them. Uh and I think that the decision to have children would have been much harder um around about 2014, 2015, when I mean that's the speed at which this is, you know, this stuff has really happened that, mm. you know, thinking, oh well they'll probably, you know, at this mm. stage they were saying, well we've got, you know, we've probably got about 12 years to start to act and and you know, and get things right before we move past tipping points where we're going to be committed to pretty awful times and maybe really terrible times. Mm. And then in their lifetimes, mm. in their lifespans, it's been really horrifying. Of course I measure time, you know, by their lives. I mean, I, I kind of, my life straddles most of the, you know, large part of the Anthropocene um, and so that's why I sort of used it. But then they come, they, they are you know just such a, a you know such an um, so such an emotional uh point of in, engagement of course with this material because you know in the time that they've been alive mm. we're now seeing the the times that we've been told that we can actually take um radical action to to divest from most fossil fuels and we've yeah. already now committed to i think it's 1.9 degrees of of rise pretty much no matter what and so we you know, so things are going to be, you know, pretty bad now. But the that 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 those timeframes have just come to. Like, I think the the latest time frame is basically now. And so all those things that where you would you would think about your own childhood, and you would think, well, mm. you know, just those questions of what am I going to be when I grow up, mm. um, <laughs> become so altered that I really. Mm find myself, there's a real sense of, you know, end sickness, disconnect, you know, where you try to think of those questions, you know, by the time you leave
0: school, what's the the world going to be looking at? Very difficult. Making my heart beat quickly and creating butterflies in my stomach, that's, I mean, I I hear you, I completely understand what you're saying. I'd like to end by coming back to this question about your role as a writer, which I find really interesting for all writers. Late in this essay, you you say that writers need to really just accept that writing doesn't have much power, but they should still get on with it. They should still write. It's still important, whilst accepting that their contribution is modest. Mm -hmm. I want to then bring you to an expression that you use about creative nonfiction. I see in your description on UTS, that's one of your teaching and research interests. And I wanted to ask you about that idea of creative nonfiction and whether that is your personal answer, that that that's the best sort of writing that you can do for these times. Could you talk a bit about that notion of creative nonfiction, what it means and whether you think that is the best response you personally as a writer can make to the threats that we're facing? Um, Oh, look, that's a hard one because
1: I don't feel like there's a huge divide between fiction and and nonfiction in my
0: own life. I'm so promiscuous
1: (laughs) Um, uh, I yeah
0: I look what do you mean non- by creative non-fiction I wondered what that meant creative non-fiction
1: is really um a field where instead of people writing non-fiction in a depersonalized way mm-hmm. it's about bringing the, the self into into fiction among among many other things I suppose that would be the, the the simplest way to to talk about it that it's it's writing trying to find different ways of writing that don't Sort of pull, pull rank in the way that yes. you know terrible history, you know, that, well, the the history that that we would have grown up with, that kind of comes mm-hmm. from
0: above. So it's, it's an appeal to the emotions as well as the intellect.
1: Yes, and it's really trying. I mean, I I just, I mean, I, I would say that you know, you just come, you come into the world with a particular sort of skill set, and so I'm not even necessarily kind of coming in and waving a. A, a banner for, for um, creative nonfiction as a you know world-changing thing I think it's you know I, I think that it's where a lot of the more interesting writing is happening but I really my own personal approach ha- yes has come out of living in that reading that field a lot mm. um, and being most engaged by those writers who write personally but Mm. I really just thought these things are so unthinkable. I'm not a not someone who has much desire to be an autobiographical writer at all, but mm. my, I just was so struck by that feeling that my life, you know, starts about 15, 16 mm. years into the great acceleration and so it's a measure and you know it's so hard to measure these things and to see these changes, you know, flashing by. And I thought, well what I have is my you know, is myself, is my observations, is my feeling of what is, you know, slipping potentially out of our, our grasp, my sort of feel attempt to sort of expand my emotional range to to try and capture and understand what's going on. That's, you know, that's the, kind of
0: the, the the best I've got to offer. Let me congratulate you on this wonderful book. And that's exactly what you have done. And that was why I wondered. This this is creative nonfiction power excellence. I mm-hmm. think you write about complex ideas in beautiful, beautifully expressed prose and you you express these complex ideas in a very accessible and engaging way. So congratulations on this thank beautiful you. book. I wish you the very best of luck with it. I absolutely loved it. I can't recommend it highly enough. And thank you so much for appearing on Books, Books, Books. Oh, thanks very much for having me. Thank you for listening to Books, Books, Books. If you liked what you heard in this episode, please go to my website, nicoleabity.com.au to listen to all the episodes and find out more about the podcast. You can also find me, Nicole Aberty, on Facebook, Instagram and Twitter and look for my reviews in Good Weekend. You can subscribe to Books, Books, Books at Apple Podcasts, Spotify, google and all the usual places it would be lovely if you could go to any of these platforms and give books 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 a rating or review thank you i look forward to talking books with you again soon